a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A Gentle Thief, written and performed by Amanda Dixon. This is Episode 3. In Episode 2, we met a young girl named Maddie Johnson, who was growing up in Pennsylvania with her parents, Cookie and Ike Johnson, who were very unhappily married, so unhappily that they eventually divorced. After divorcing, Ike Johnson met a woman named Samantha, who he became fond of and wanted to remarry. But he knew he could not do so unless his young daughter Maddie approved because she truly was the love of his life. And we left it there. And now, episode three of A Gentle Thief. There was a bullet hole in her right temple. Sophie stood in the office bathroom, splashing water on her face, feeling it dampen her neck and the front of her blouse. She pulled a wad of paper towels from the dispenser and held them to her chest to sop up the water and to steady her heart. Please don't let anyone else come in this bathroom. Please let me not throw up on my first day at work. Please let me handle this. Get it together, Sophie. What was this case? Who was that young girl with the gaping red wound a few inches above her right ear with a little turquoise earring? Why did this picture feel so much more visceral and horrifying than any number of crime scene photos you'd see on the news or in movies? It was so real. Sophie thought for a moment she smelled blood. She pictured the girl's face in her mind even as she saw her own in the mirror. The girl's skin around the bullet wound was a burned orangish brown. The blood was pooled underneath the girl's head on the pillow, and her left eye was leaning out of its socket just slightly, as if trying to get away from the bullet. She was lying on her back in bed with what looked like a thin, light blue blanket pulled up underneath her arms. Her arms and the gun were on top of the blanket. She was holding the gun in both hands. Sophie stood in the unforgiving light of the bathroom. She suddenly wanted to go back to her desk and look at the picture again. Something was wrong. After breathing slowly for a moment more and wiping the ruined makeup from under her eyes, she tucked in her blouse and walked back down the hall to her office. She didn't see anyone along the way and was so grateful for that. Tender mercy. When she reached the solace of her small office, she closed the door and sat down. There she was again, the girl with the gun in her hands. The picture was staring up at her from the desk. She shouldn't have left it out in the open like this. Rosie could have walked in and seen it. Sophie stared. The girl was a honey blonde, like her, 
it was definitely the same girl in the graduation picture and the wedding picture she had been looking at minutes before, although it was hard to recognize her with her face so violently transformed. Sophie felt drawn to the picture and repulsed by it, like you were driving by a car accident. Her eyes kept going back to the gun. The gun looked wrong. The girl seemed to be holding it gently in her delicate little hands, resting it on her chest. The barrel of the gun was pointing up toward her face. Her right hand was gripped around the barrel, and her left thumb was positioned on the trigger. It looked so awkward, so unnatural, as if she could not have held that position for long on her own if she had still been breathing. Sophie had the strangest thought. Despite it all, the girl looked pretty. But wrong. Something was really wrong, like a mannequin where the arms are going the opposite way. What was it that was bothering her? Was it just the position of the gun? Was there something else she was missing? She studied what little she could see of the surrounding room in the picture. It was a close shot of the girl. She couldn't see much. The only other thing was the blanket on the bed. Oh, wait. There was a little dial mechanism, like on an electric blanket, with a small light indicating it was still on. Sophie's phone rang. It startled her. She checked to make sure she could talk, cleared her throat, then noticed the time just as she picked it up. Are you coming home? Sean said, part playfully, part annoyed. Oh, Sean, I'm so sorry. I can't wait to come home. I'm walking out the door right now. I need to tell you about this horrible case I just got. It's horrible, just horrible. Her voice trailed off as she got distracted again by the picture. What is it? They didn't give you a death penalty case on your first day, did they? Yes, they did, she answered softly. Well, sort of. I'll bring it home with me. I need your help understanding what I'm looking at. Sure, whatever you need. Just come home now, okay? His voice sounded like a little boy when he pleaded. It was kind of nice and kind of not. I'm turning off the computer right now. With that, she hung up turned off the desk light, put the picture and all the papers back in the file, grabbed her coat, and walked out the door. She was hoping when she got home, Sean could help her, talk her through it, sit next to her while she looked at the rest of the file. Her husband had covered crime for the Sun for 20 years. He was a seasoned reporter. Nothing fazed him anymore. A quality that was sometimes a source of exasperation in their marriage, but would come in handy tonight. Sophie longed for the everything-will-be-all-right feeling that came off him like steam. Hello there, counselor, Sean said with a kiss. He had a dish towel draped over his left shoulder, the endearing habit of a great cook who loved his work. Mmm, something smells wonderful, Sophie said as she took off her coat and hung it in the hall closet. Garlic chicken a la Sean, he said smiling, the specialty of the house. Sometimes when Sean was talking to his wife, he sounded like he had a bigger audience than just her. He guided her to the living room, where they frequently ate dinner sitting Indian-style in front of the coffee table. The table was lit with a candle left over from Christmas, set beautifully with cloth placemats and matching napkins, and plates heaped with a steaming chicken dish over rice. He must have served it up moments before. Yes, Sophie thought. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 
She kicked off her shoes and sat down right there in her skirt on the floor. Although it was not her habit to pray when Sean was around, she had the urge to give thanks at that moment. Oh, wow, she said with her mouth full. Mm, this is delicious. You like? he asked rhetorically, turning on the TV. The TV was rarely off in their home. If they were home and awake, the TV was on. Sophie stared blankly at the TV for ten minutes after she finished eating. She felt completely weighed down by the food and the warmth of her surroundings. When she finally rose to do the dishes, it was slowly and with some effort. This was the Brownlee dinner ritual. Sean cooked, and Sophie cleaned up, an agreement that suited them both perfectly, as neither would have been satisfied with the other's attempt at the opposite task. Sean came into the small kitchen to refill their water glasses. So, what's this death penalty case? he asked. It's in my briefcase. Take a look, she gestured, her hands wet from rinsing the plates. She wondered if a tiny part of her was hoping to shock him the way Rick had shocked her on her first day. Sean got the expandable file and carried it into the living room with his fresh water glass. Sophie rinsed and scrubbed and put in the dishwasher, listening all the while to the living room for any gasps or caught breaths. She heard nothing but the TV and the silverware banging around as she dropped it more carelessly than usual into the dishwasher holder. When she finished up in the kitchen, she turned off the light and almost tiptoed into the living room. Sean had the pictures out on the coffee table in front of him and was reviewing one of the documents. It seemed he had already gotten much further into the case than she had managed at the office. This is interesting, he said, referring to a letter. What? Okay, the dad hired a forensic pathologist to review the case because he believes the daughter was killed, probably by her boyfriend, even though the medical examiner called it a suicide. The expert he hired, a guy named DiMaggio, says it was a homicide, that the powder tests on her hands came back negative, and that since the crime scene was so botched, any determination without conclusive evidence one way or the other ought to come down on the side of homicide. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sophie was trying to take in everything he had said. You're going too fast. The family wants to do what? Haven't you read the case, Soph? He asked accusingly, then softened. Okay, it looks like the dad is hiring you to convince the Utah State Medical Examiner to change the determination of death on the death certificate from suicide to homicide. Dad doesn't think she did it. But what about the pictures? Those were all Sophie had seen, all she could think about. What about this one? She shoved the crime scene photo at him. What about it? He asked, genuinely, not knowing what she was getting at. She slunk down on the love seat next to the couch where he was sitting. She felt the hot sting of tears forming in her eyes. Baby, I... Sean tried. Doesn't it make you feel something? Sophie didn't care that her tone was accusing. How can you just hold it so nonchalantly like that? She's dead. Someone killed her, and we're looking at the last thing the killer saw before he left the room. That's the same beautiful, pathetic girl just the way he left her with her eyeball hanging out like that. Her breathing was becoming labored, and the tears were streaming down her face now. Hold on. He was trying to soothe her. Don't spiral on me, okay? It's just that I see stuff like this all the time, okay? It's okay now. 
these pictures are 20 years old, and that doesn't make them any less horrible. No, it doesn't. But you can't let this stuff get to you like this. It's just a case. Remember, you don't know this girl, but I could have. She's about my age, which means she would have been 40-something by now. She could have been me. What are you talking about? She couldn't. Don't you think she looks a little like me? Okay, that's enough. She looks nothing like you, and even if she did, that's not why we're looking at these pictures. He paused. Come over here. He patted the couch next to him like you might to encourage a dog to jump up. Let's go through it together, okay? There's nothing to be afraid of here. You're a lawyer who's looking at evidence from 20 years ago, trying to make some sense out of it. Her name was Madeline Ruth Johnson. They studied the case for two hours that night until Sophie's brain could not take in any more information. Madeline Ruth Johnson was 23 years old when she was found dead on January 1st, 1984. She was found just as she appeared in the picture by a neighbor, a guy named Kemmler, around noon on New Year's Day. The neighbor called the police and told them his friend had committed suicide. When the police came, they made the cardinal of all cop mistakes. They treated the case as a suicide from the very beginning, not preserving any of the evidence, not sufficiently photographing the crime scene, not even going through the motions of an investigation. The cop who responded to the call, a guy named Officer Kevin Nielsen, had even cleaned Madeline up. He washed the blood from her neck, took off the necklace she was wearing, and cleaned it before putting it back on. He even changed the sheets, but obviously not the pillowcase, since there was still dark red blood on that. Officer Nielsen said later, when asked about his actions, that he, quote, didn't want the family to see her like that. There were a few other photos of the crime scene in the expandable file. One showed a shot of the living room. There was a chair knocked over. You could see a bottle of pills partially spilled on the living room floor. There was nothing in the file about what the pills were or what they had been prescribed for, not even how many there were. When Sophie looked closely at the picture, she noted ashes in the fireplace and a larger piece of paper that looked only partially burned. She looked through the papers to see if anyone had gathered the ashes and the paper to see what they were. There was nothing about that. The police had even thought to dust for fingerprints. Of course, they hadn't thought to gather the ashes. When the local coroner arrived that New Year's Day, he didn't like the way the girl's hands looked placed on the gun. He noticed some brown markings on the hands and decided to bag them and send her up to Salt Lake to the state medical examiner for a powder test and autopsy. The M.E. at the time, a Dr. Harold Levitt, removed the bullet fragments from her skull, but didn't get them all. His notes indicated that he would have had to do considerable damage to her head and face in order to get all of the fragments. And considering it was a suicide, he didn't see the need to ruin the girl for her funeral. What fragments he did remove, he claims he checked into evidence. But when the father's investigators tried to retrieve them years later, they were nowhere to be found. As a result... It is impossible to ever weigh those fragments and compare them to the bullets in the gun Madeline was holding to see if the bullet that killed her even came from that gun. 
And then the powder test came back negative. What you got for me, Brownlee? Rick Day plopped down in one of the two chairs squeezed in between her desk and the wall opposite. He had a smirk on his face that she was beginning to think might be permanent. Morning, Rick. How did you like your first case? With that, Rick let out an impressive laugh, which would have seemed inappropriate coming from anyone else. Hope I didn't scare you away right off the bat with this one, he added, not meaning what he said in the slightest. Not at all. Sophie lied. This is a great case. We can really do something to help this father. Whoa! Rick whinnied. First things first. I got a $5,000 retainer. Is that going to be enough? I would think so. Yes, more than enough. Sophie answered, having no idea. Okay, shoot. Who's the dead girl? Madeline Ruth Johnson, age 23. Sophie liked the official tone in her voice. She handed Rick the one-page memo she had finished just minutes before. She was found dead in her home on New Year's Day, 1984, with a gun placed like this in her hands. She handed over the photograph from the crime scene. Glancing at it, Rick said, Yeah, okay, what's the deal? Did she kill herself or what? Sophie did not react to his tone. The neighbor found her and called it in as a suicide, and the dumb bunny cops in Cedar City believed him. Sophie made a mental note not to use the phrase dumb bunny anymore. They played it that way from the beginning, never preserving the crime scene or any evidence until the local coroner got there. He didn't like the position of the hands or those brownish markings on her left hand, see there? She gestured. So he bagged her hands and sent her to the ME's office in Salt Lake for an autopsy. She paused to see if he had any questions. He did not. The M.E. did a powder test and performed the autopsy. Just like the cops, he had been told it was a probable suicide, so he decides not to remove all the bullet fragments in an effort not to screw up her face for the funeral. After he finishes and makes his decision, the powder test comes back negative. Phew, Rick exhaled. We got a live one. We may need more money. There's a lot more in this file. I've only read through it quickly so far. There are private investigator reports and forensic pathology reports and... Okay, he said standing up. Read through the rest. Make sure we're not missing something. Like why the M.E. wouldn't change the death certificate when the parents asked him to. We're not the first lawyers the father hired, you know. It's been 20 years for crying out loud. There must be a reason Juan doesn't want to change the manner of death. Figure out what it is before I call him. Sophie had not known that Rick was friendly enough with the current Utah medical examiner, Dr. Juan Verdad, to call him Juan. Let's call the father toward the end of the week after you read the whole file, he said derisively, and we'll tell him what our strategy is. Of course, we'll do that after you've come up with our strategy, Brownlee. He punctuated her last name with a meaningful stare and then turned to leave. Sounds good. She replied to his back as he sauntered off to pester another associate for an update he probably was not prepared to give. Sophie spent the rest of the morning reading the file, organizing it chronologically the best she could, which was no easy task considering it was just a pile of not-always-dated papers. While she discovered many other interesting details, she kept coming back in her mind and in the documents to that powder test. If it came back negative, Madeline never fired a gun, right? Dr. Verdad must have known about the powder test. Why hadn't that test convinced him to change his mind, to rule the death a homicide? And if the powder test couldn't get him to change his mind, what would? Motive? Would motive move him? 
What if Madeline had no motive to kill herself, and someone else did have a motive to kill her? Was an M.E. persuaded by such an argument, or was that something they only talked about on Law and Order? Sophie didn't know, but she had to start somewhere. She started with what she knew for sure. Madeline Johnson was a beautiful young woman, an elementary school English teacher who had obvious connections to her students and her school. She had married a man twice her age, named Robert Abel, when she was only 21, something Sophie could relate to, and then divorced him two years later, something Sophie could not imagine. Why had she divorced? There were notes in the file from a private investigator. He interviewed the ex-husband a year after Madeline's death. The ex had seemed defensive when asked about why they divorced, but that's not uncommon. He blamed everything on another man named Consul Ye. Robert said his marriage was going along fine, painted a picture of marital bliss until this con guy came along. But Sophie knew it was never that simple. The P.I. had interviewed Solier, too. This guy was a piece of work, arrogant and unstable, still happy to talk about how hard Madeline had fallen for him without showing any sense of remorse over her death. He claimed that Maddie fell in love with him the day they met and left her husband a week later. The report added that Solier claimed he never suggested Maddie get a divorce, but she had gotten one a month after meeting him anyway. Then came the riveting part. So Ye and Maddie broke up two nights before she was found dead. Was that a motive for suicide or homicide? Could be either, Sophie imagined. Reading on, she learned that Solier had said he was the one to break it off, that Maddie had become too clingy, and that he had an alibi for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day of that year. He claimed he had been in Vegas for the holiday and did not come home until the afternoon of the 1st. He offered his credit card bills to confirm the alibi, but the P.I. never followed up on that point. What about the ex-husband's alibi? Sophie flipped back through the stack of documents to find the notes of his interview with the investigator. Lots of talk about Shakespeare, how he met Maddie, his impressions of her parents when he went to meet them, but no talk of an alibi. Sophie made a note. There were lots of notes written on the consulier interview. How does he prove that? And this is not true exclamation point were scratched in the margins with emphasis. It was clear that the father, whose name was Ike Johnson, suspected Soulier of murdering his daughter, or at least of something. Sophie wondered if the two had ever met. She suspected Maddie had not taken Soulier home to meet her parents the way she had Robert Abel. From what Sophie could put together, Maddie and Soulier hadn't been together that long before she died. Plus, he didn't seem like the type you'd trust enough to travel across the country with, let alone introduce to your parents. Sipping her coffee as she walked back to the office, Sophie thought to call Sean. Hi there, she whispered, trying to sound sexy. Is this a crank call? He teased her. Yes, I'm losing my mind and I need you, she laughed, comforted by the sound of his voice. What's up? he asked. This place is so quiet and stressful. Everything has to be done immediately. The coffee pot is always empty when I go to the break room. My secretary doesn't like me and I want to go home, she whined like a little girl. Ah, oh, it can't be that bad. What can I do to help you? he asked patiently. Oh, nothing. I just wanted to hear your voice. This case is just so huge. The file is huge. There are too many facts to organize and understand. 
The implications for the family are huge. The whole thing is just gigundous. Eat the elephant one bite at a time, remember? He had a slogan for everything. Oh, that reminds me. I was talking to some of the guys over here who cover crime about your case. What? You can't do that, Sean. What we talk about is absolutely confidential. What if the family didn't want that getting out? I probably wasn't even supposed to be talking to you about it. Take it easy. I didn't tell them anything. I was just asking them about powder tests and whether they had ever seen a false negative. You're not going to like what they said. What's that? Those tests are inaccurate 80% of the time. 